Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of ANC's Matters of Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. We're still joined by Dr. Eric Tayag. He used to head the Epidemiology Center of the Philippine Department of Health. He is also a former president of the Philippine Society of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Thank you very much for joining us again, Dr. Tayag, on this podcast. Christian, thank you for having me back. So for this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the ongoing search for a cure for COVID-19. We've been hearing a lot of uh, possibilities. There was this uh, small, uh, I think it was a clinical trial that was held in France, which somehow provided uh, a lot of um, hope to a lot of people that perhaps you might be close to finding a cure. But let's talk about the realities at this point, Dr. Tayag. This is your expertise. You're, you're both an epidemiologist and an infectious disease specialist. Uh, how do you actually look for a cure for a medicine that actually works for COVID-19? How difficult is it? Christian, first of all, there's no specific cure for COVID at this time. It's a virus. Yeah. So treatments, ever since the outbreak began, was focused only on supportive treatment. For example, if you have fever, you bring down the fever. If you have cough, okay, the mice in the throat so that the mucus is expelled. And uh, if, if you have shortage of breath or pneumonia, some health providers would start with antibiotics, uh, put you on oxygen. And if you become critical, you're in the, you find yourself in the intensive care unit, and you are hooked to a respirator, um, recovery may take as, as early as two weeks. That's, that's longer than most infectious diseases. And maybe recovery can also take longer, up to six weeks, especially for those who will be confined in intensive care units. So what were the usual suspects? They began looking at, for example, uh, experiments during the SARS days, wherein, remember SARS in 2002-2003, so they were experimenting on drugs that uh, can be used to fight the virus, including vaccines that can actually be used to fight the virus. And they came out with um, several compounds and one of those they discovered was an old malaria drug mm. or hydro hydroxychloroquine and then the experiment they used this for mild cases or patients with mild systems at the most moderate symptoms because they found out in experiments decades ago that uh, they can actually inhibit or prevent the replication of the virus when it gets into the cells. Mm. So, and an antibiotic, the azithromycin. Mm. The other treatment uh, trials were based on other drugs. The usual suspect again was, can we use an anti-flu drug, an antiviral drug? There's a Japanese flu medicine, it's Avigan, and this is also for mild to moderate cases. And so therefore they experimented on that. There has been a success, but it's only li limited to mild and moderate cases. 
Mm-hmm. And so forth, also look at the failed anti-Ebola drug that's remdesivir. Okay? And initially, these drugs were approved for use only on a compassionate basis for severe critical cases. So that's the third one. And then they thought of a combination of HIV drugs, that's Caletra, Lopinavir, and Ritunavir. Mm-hmm. And lately, they're looking at immunosuppressant drugs. There's your tocilizumab. And now they're also, con, um, they're actually uh, looking at zarilumab. And so these immunosuppressant drugs are also candidates. It's going to be a trial and error, or you can do better. Do studies that actually will pass scrutiny. And so the preferred method is double blind, okay, mm-hmm. case control, and multi center study because you may not have enough patients. And so here comes the solidarity protocol of the WHO wherein patients are enrolled. They should be at least 18 years old, okay? And you have not have been treated previously. Mm. And so there'll be uh, health, health facilities that will be providing, but this to be approved mm. by those authority responsible for the multi-center trial. So what's happening now in the Philippines, Christian, you may want to ask. Mm. Well, our infectious disease experts are abreast. In fact, they are changing notes, even as we speak now. They're trying these medicines, okay? But of course, they're guided by, by protocols, okay? And if it's available, Perhaps they will actually try it and then report the success or even failure of using the protocol. But we do not want to give a false sense of hope for everyone that these are actually real treatments already because we are in that stage of looking at the benefits of using these drugs. Usually, how long and difficult is the process of uh, finding a drug specific to a particular disease? So in this case, COVID-19. It depends on the number of participants that have been included in the clinical trial. And if you show results that uh, actually they're beneficial, you don't even have to end the trial, okay? So it can, it can range from a few patients. There's the really convincing evidence that it really works. So it's all out there. So actually this is a phenomenal work from all scientists and uh, our clinicians, our clinical providers, because information is shared every minute. Mm-hmm. Nothing secret and so therefore everyone learns from the other from a country to another country from a group of experts to another group of experts 
they're actually discussing their results, coming up with new protocols, improving the treatment protocols, even the doses, mm. everything on an error. And now it's becoming evidence-based and that's what we want. Mm. Because we are in a race against time here. A lot of people uh, have already died. Yes. Mm. Correct. Now, and, when it, and we have patients' consent, of course. Yeah. Now, usually when you talk about uh, samples, how, how big should the sample size be? for you to come up with, um, with a credible uh, trial here? Okay. That's why the solidarity protocol uh, calls for a multi-center to satisfy the number of participants that can give them a more accurate conclusion. So for example, if you try it on five people, it's not going to say much. If you try it on five people and compare it to another five people who will take a placebo mm -hmm. okay can compare results then that's a higher level of evidence mm -hmm. and as you increase the number of subjects or samples okay you have better or accurate interpretations of your conclusions and of course there are phase one phase two phase three trials for vaccines, which are also considered, okay? And there's also a new modality of treatment they're considering. It's harvesting the plasma from patients who have recovered. That's convalescent plasma, okay? You harvest the plasma portion of the blood, so there are antibodies, and so therefore, you give it to another person. So, so uh, under normal circumstances, uh, how long usually does it take for, for companies, for experts, for specialists to come up with a drug? Does it take uh, a couple of years or can that be done in, in several months? For example, the uh, Japanese Avigan was a repurposed. Uh, it's a flu drug and now it's going to be used to treat patients with the COVID. Mm. Okay? So, this drug already exists. Mm. Okay, so they're looking at experiments for this drug, for these drugs that have showed actually any activity against the virus. Mm. Okay, so therefore, uh, it starts with a hypothesis. So, for example, uh, let's look at our catalog of drugs that we already have. Mm. Okay, so the strategy is let's not reinvent the wheel. So which are the candidates? So they started, for example, with anti-flu drugs, mm -hmm. then the malarial, anti-malarial drugs, mm -hmm. then a, an antibiotic, then an HIV drug combination, then there's your immunosuppressants, uh, and then a failed Ebola drug. So all of these they have considered. And so there's a race to look at which of these actually works, okay? But the most popular right now are the anti-malarial drugs. The chloroquine and the hydroxychloroquine. In fact, the, our FDA has cautioned the public because we have been monitoring. This requires a prescription, and I doubt it if you can buy it because it's a public health commodity for our anti-malaria program. And for those who have access to it, 
they're even using it even before they get sick. It's what they call prophylaxis. It has been associated with irregular heartbeats. And so therefore, any use of that should be under the supervision of a physician. But there have been uh, reports that uh, people are self-medicating on chloroquine and then hydroxychloroquine. Yes, because uh, they find ways how to access it. And so therefore, the FDA is warning the public not to experiment on yourselves. There's a better way to find out which treatment actually works. Mm. So, so basically, uh, we are not starting from scratch here, from zero. We have available drugs for different uses, and the experts are trying on which particular combinations or which particular drug in itself might actually work. That's the situation, right? That's correct. So if you look at our lines of defense, one, the first line is we detect that surveillance. The second one is we prevent spread. That's your stay home quarantine or isolation. The third one is that you seek care and treatment as soon as possible in a hospital that's equipped with health providers, okay, with testing kits, with other diagnostics, you need to draw blood for, to look for example, abnormalities in your complete blood count mm. because the white cells actually go down, okay? And then you may actually use a CT scan because in China, they were able to elucidate a ground glass appearance lesions in the CT scans of patients with pneumonia in their lungs. Mm. And so they can interpret this as a unique feature of a patient with COVID, even without the, okay? So the CT scan finding complements, of course, your PCR test. Mm. And another line of defense will be these treatment protocols. Of course, your supportive uh, treatment, there's oxygen, there's your respirator, um, there's some are experimenting on steroids. So mm. the jury's there on the use of steroids. And uh, of course, an excellent intensive care unit care, okay, is very, very important. And we don't have enough ICUs, Christian. Mm. This is very, and so therefore, these treatments are needed because any of these drugs can, the first one, for example, um, reduces the viral load, okay? For example, the uh, combinations, when they reduce the viral load, there's a question, is there actually a recovery? So depending on how the treatment protocol was actually developed or designed, they have a goal. So what's the goal? Uh, is it the reduction of viral load? Is it the survival? Is it the number of days hospitalization is reduced? Is it the number of days wherein viral shedding is reduced? So. They're monitoring all these parameters mm -hmm. to come with a very good recommendation that uh, 
can become a standard treatment in the next few days or perhaps. Mm-hmm. So, so can you elaborate on the uh, on the gold standard of uh, trial here? When you mentioned double blind, uh, is it randomized or what? Yes, it's randomized because you don't you you want to eliminate bias. Okay, so there's a certain criteria for uh, for facilitating the enrollment. Okay, and then you divide them into two groups. Okay. Neither of the individuals assigned to the group, okay, know which of the drugs they have taken. Mm. So you may have taken the drugs that is being investigated for its benefits or a placebo, okay. Mm. Taking it will not have Mm. any harm or will not even give any benefit, okay. It's a placebo. Mm. Nothing changed. Yeah. And then of this paper. That's why there's consent, okay? It has to be approved by an ethics committee. Imagine if this drug really works, there's a similar group that are not actually getting the beneficial drug because they are being given the placebo. Mm -hmm. And if it really saves lives, the other group who's not taking it are actually at risk. So it has to go through an ethics review. Okay, before you can go on with your uh, treatment or a clinical trial. And so, therefore, what these patients, and in some instances, because of the patient's consent, they can actually withdraw anytime from the trial. And so, therefore, there are considerations when this happens because you want to ask yourself, if so many actually withdraw from the trial, how can I make a conclusion does these drugs really work when there's a significant number who did not finish the medication? Okay, so those things are taken care of in the design so that when conclusions are made, actually there's a review, okay, there's a peer review. Mm-hmm. Others look at your what you did in the clinical trial every detail is scrutinized like uh how did you choose your subjects was there bias okay was it random okay so volunteers are a no-no for uh so actually there should be a process how to actually get this in growth so uh, it's going to be a critical situation for validating benefits of these treatment trials. But what happens because of communication, even before the trial started, even without the results, they're already out there. And people who have the means would try it already. And so, therefore, the FDA would give warnings on false claims, on false advertisements, especially those based on testimonies. This has to be FDA approved. Okay. Mm-hmm. But people are impatient because the process is tedious. Okay. And it has to be. Um, yes. But there's also that sense of urgency. 
So there's a question now, should we, should we relax some of the restrictions on doing these tests? Okay, so what can we do about it? And so therefore, WHO came out with that multi-center trial. Okay, now let's talk about how the virus works. The, the mechanism, what does it do to a patient's body? To an infected patient's body and uh, when you look for a drug that might work uh, what they actually look for let's talk about the mechanism of it okay the virus essentially infects the host cells okay and so therefore uh, it works in two ways the damage they do okay they replicate okay and destroy the cells Okay, the body recognizes the this particular damage because it causes inflammation. The immune system, okay, now sends soldiers, mm. okay, to contain the invasion of these viruses. Uh, sometimes there is an over reaction of the immune system that it doesn't recognize even the healthy cells and so even healthy cells are actually attacked and so therefore this causes harm and these are the secondary effects of the uh, viral invasion in a host and so therefore it causes a multiple uh, organ failure situation is starting with the lungs so it's it primarily attacks the lungs that causes pneumonia okay and this is what the clinicians fear adult res acute respiratory distress syndrome mm -hmm. okay you suddenly cannot breathe you have to be hooked into a respirator or ventilator mm -hmm. and that why on the extreme clinical care for those patients in the ICUs, we should have enough ventilators. In fact, there are companies in the other countries, not your usual companies that produce ventilators, but have repositioned itself to produce ventilators other than the equipment they use to produce, Christian. Mm -hmm. So everyone has refocused its production, including for people. Those in the garment industries are doing the PPEs, the masks. So everybody has to make sure that we have all of this. Okay, so you mentioned the mechanism of the virus, how it attacks the host cells, and also how it begins with the lungs primarily. So when looking for a drug that might work, uh, what specifically are you looking for? What should the drug do? It should be efficacious and it should be safe. Those two things. But, but I mean, in terms of mechanism, how should it counter the, the, the virus that attacks the host cell? It should stop the effects of the... Uh, the viral invasion and so therefore uh, 
because the viral invasion can cause fever, so there's your supportive treatment to bring down the fever, okay? The virus can cause diarrhea, and so therefore you replace the fluids that have been lost. So that's the supportive uh, treatment uh, protocol. But for the actual treatment, you attack uh, the replication of the virus, okay? And it's in fact on the immune system. That's why you have this new immunosuppressants. Mm -hmm. And then you also look at antibodies that fight the virus. So you have vaccines, okay, they're in progress now. And then there's your convalescent plasma that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. You harvest plasma portion of your blood from a case which has already recovered. And so therefore, you give this, okay, to a serious or some critical and look at the results. So the jury is still out there mm. for many of these treatments. Uh, let's talk about the impact of certain drugs that are now in use, including here in the Philippines. Uh, for example, the malaria drugs, yung chloroquine and uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, are they actually showing promise? Are they helping? What I can say is the jury is still out there. And so therefore, the infectious disease experts have made this as their task to make sure this follow scientific protocols and not something that's anecdotal. So what's anecdotal? Oh, I have a patient who had mild symptoms. I gave them a 10-day course of hydro hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin at uh, these particular dosages. And guess what? I was able to send them home. They mm -hmm. recovered. That's anecdotal. But if you say that I have this group of patients who recovered compared to another set of patients, okay, that I only gave a placebo, then you actually give actual evidence okay but the thing is what i just mentioned is a study it's a research protocol out there you don't tell the patients would you like to join a research or a study protocol okay and so therefore everything is possible okay there are choices that physicians have to take and on their best judgment, offer these choices to the patient. The patient agrees with what the benefits can actually give them, what are the risks are, and if these are acceptable, then these treatments are given to the patients. And we hope for the best. At this point, uh, since there's no cure yet for COVID-19, under what circumstances can a doctor here in the Philippines uh, prescribe or make use of, let's say, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine on a patient suffering from COVID-19? We have to make sure that these treatments are not given left and right. There should be a system in the hospitals wherein uh, even before these treatments are given, there's a protocol and there's a go signal. 
okay, that you can actually use this. So it's not something arbitrary. Mm. Even if you're the health provider, you have to consult, okay, with the other teams. And this is not a decision only from the patient, from the physician in charge. We recommend that it's actually a protocol that's going to be standard for that particular health facility question. Mm. And actually, there's a set of guidelines released already by, by the Philippine uh, Society of, uh, of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, right? That's correct, Christian. And we closely monitor the results. The results are being shared. And as I said, the jury's still out there. And so therefore, while there are recommendations for the treatment, what is important is that these are monitored and the results are reported so we can learn from uh, how these treatments were actually used. And actually, you need the consent of the patient, right? You need to tell them that uh, we may use, we can use an off-label drug, but you need to agree on this, right? Yes, but uh, because everyone is desperate now, it's not going to be difficult to get the patient's consent. Between a treatment that is, even if it's in an experimental treatment, and a situation where there is no treatment, you go and accept the treatment, knowing what the risks are. And what? Between mm. the treatment and having nothing, Okay. The choice is obvious, Christian. Yeah. So they're willing to take the risk. But what are the risks here? For example, you mentioned irregular heartbeat. So basically, that's arrhythmia, right? Well, it's not only that. It's because uh, these drugs will have costs. Okay. And so therefore, uh, you have to make sure that they actually really work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you don't waste the drug. You have to follow strictly the protocol, not only the side effects, okay? You really have to look at uh, some parameters. So you don't do these clinical trials without actually monitoring and showing actual evidence. You have to show, for example, there is a reduction in viral load. So how many hospitals can actually do this? So if you cannot do this, what are the surrogate indicators so that you can show that they actually are beneficial. Otherwise, all your stories, all your documentation are anecdotal. And if we accumulate data, it's just a matter of time, and then we can make an announcement. Maybe, perhaps another country can already announce it. And so therefore, we just stop it. We don't have to experiment on it. We don't have to make a study in it. But the cautious thing to do is, how about the Filipinos will behave differently to these treatments, okay? So we ignore the results of these treatments in other countries because we want to know if what is good for other countries is also good for us. Okay? Because there are also or, doctors involved. Yes. Yeah, policy that, well, whatever WHO says, we just follow. So that's just another policy. How much does uh, it actually cost, let's say, to manage um, a moderate case? For example, you get confined for how many days? 
how much they usually do spend? Okay. This may be anecdotal, for example, a patient, okay, initially in the earlier days of this outbreak, if you are in a private hospital, you can easily cough out thousands of pesos only for the PPEs the health workers used. For you? Just to take, yes. Mm. And for testing kits, you know how it costs, it's 2,000 or more. The rapid, the rapid testing kits may be much cheaper. And then there's your oxygen, and then your respirator, and all the other medicine. Okay. The field health as a package. In fact, uh, the health workers should not have to fear about uh, whether or not they uh, will have to spend out of pocket. The field health will cover it for all health workers for all the frontline workers. And that's the good news. And the bad news is if you get admitted in ICU, you can only imagine how much it would cost you every day. You have to stay home, Christian. Yeah, I mean for, don't for want cases. Yes. It's very costly, right? It's not only costly. Imagine this. You're alone in the hospital. Visitors are not allowed. They see you not so often because we want to reduce their exposures of these doctors and nurses. Okay. You are hooked to a respirator. Okay. And it gets even worse. Uh, look at the natural history of the illness. In five days after catching the virus, you already exhibit the symptoms. Maybe it's a sore throat. Maybe it's a flu-like illness. There's fever or cough. The cough becomes irritating, okay? Mm. And they, okay, you monitor the seal fever, you take paracetamol, you remove your mucus, tap at the back, expel the mucus, for example. And then you think you're safe because you are on the first week of illness, okay, there's no fever anymore, but you still have cough. And suddenly there's shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. So when you say, for example, that 60 to 80% of cases reported in other countries are mild, they were followed up, this 80%. In fact, another 15% of those who were initially mild became severe. Mm -hmm. So it's starting out with mild symptoms. You have you don't have to take that lightly, okay? Because any of those cases with mild can suddenly become severe. And so therefore the health system should be able to make sure that everybody has access when the time comes that ICUs are needed, these treatments can be given. And also, That's this, the way. and also there's this problem of uh, this disease being uh, highly infectious, right? So you can only imagine the situation of patients confined alone. Very few people can, can, can see them. Uh, they cannot even be visited by their relatives. And worse, you're going to die alone. Hopefully not alone. Because <laughs> there's a priest perhaps. Mm. 
by your bedside. Okay. Many of us are Catholics. Okay. But I mean, you and, won't have your loved ones with you. Yes. Finally, I'd like to talk about this. Of course, um, it's only a matter of time before experts uh, find an actual uh, drug or a combination of drugs that works for COVID-19 and perhaps, uh, uh, hopefully, sooner, a vaccine. But uh, in case these things happen, mm, how do you see this disease uh, behaving in the future after this pandemic? I mean, do we have to worry this uh, as seriously as we are worrying about it now? Let's say next year, two years from now? There's some uncertainty. For example, we, we can look at China that has uh, relaxed its uh, quarantine. Okay. So we can see if uh, China will have another second wave, for example, because they have predicted that the second wave is possible. Mm -hmm. Or it can also behave like SARS. Okay, it started in 22 and 2002 and suddenly it disappeared in 2003. Mm. Or it immerse, but it's confined to sporadic cases. It's discovered in 2012 and now there's still cases, but not something that reaches a pandemic level. Or it could be your seasonal flu, we don't know. It comes endemic, it comes in and out during certain seasons. So we don't have that information. So, so far, it's still uncertain. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Eric Tayag, again, thank you very much. Uh, highly appreciated uh, for, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, thank you, sir. Even with those treatments, still stay home. <laughs> again, thank you very much, Dr. Eric Tayag. And that's it for this week's episode. Catch us again next week for another edition of the Matters of Fact podcast. Thank you.